24 of our journey through the book of Acts, and I'm going to attempt to knock out 22 whole verses at one time this morning. So we are going to move through a pretty large section because chapter 10, as I mentioned earlier, is an incredibly pivotal chapter in our journey through the book of Acts. And we are, you know, out of the 28 chapters, we're getting close to a little bit over a third of the way there at this point in time. And Things are changing dramatically. We've seen the growth and the sort of explosion of the church. We've seen the way that God has propelled them forward and given them blessing. We've seen persecution. We've seen struggle. We've seen deep relationships. And now we're going to begin to see redemptive history change. Now, technically, all redemptive history changed with Christ's death and resurrection. But you've got to understand the centuries of Jewish customs and laws that are in play And redemptive history through Christ is now going to be opened up for more than just the Jewish people. It's going to be opened up for all the Gentile people, all non-Jews. And God is teaching this to the heart of the Jewish disciples. So what's happening in these moments is though even though that that Christ has been crucified and raised from the dead and and sort of the law has been opened and fulfilled, the Jewish disciples are still coming to grips that centuries of their Old Testament Mosaic law has not been done away with but has been fulfilled in Christ and they are trying to grasp that this promise that God has given them is now available for everyone. And it's easy for us to think about and just go, well, yeah, that's part of the story. But in the mindset of a first century Jewish person who has watched centuries of their lives be tied to these uh, kind of laws and history, it's a very surprising thing that God has now opened the floodgates for all of humanity to know eternal life through Christ. And so redemptive history is going to change because what, what God is going to do through Peter is he's going to give him a picture of something much bigger. And uh, so Acts chapter 10 is really important. So everything sort of changes at this point. So here's where we are. Super kind of quick kind of catch up. Paul is out of the picture. He has been basically uh, saved. He has been baptized. He has been given the Holy Spirit. He has spent three years in the wilderness where the Holy Spirit has instructed his heart. He had gone back to Jerusalem and he's been put on a boat back for Tarsus where he came from. For seven years, he's going to do ministry in his hometown. And in a couple of chapters, we're going to see Barnabas head up to Tarsus and get Saul, bring him back to Antioch, and they're going to go on a first missionary journey. But it's going to be 10 years from now, which is about a chapter away. But Paul is out of the picture for a little while, and the entire focus of Acts moves back to Peter and a guy by the name of Cornelius, who the entire chapter 10 is really devoted to. And Cornelius plays a huge role in our story, even though he's a Roman military guard. He plays a huge role in the transition story and redemptive history in Acts chapter 10. And and the whole chapter is going to be focused around him and Peter. And I mentioned to you why it's so important and so pivotal. And that's why I'm going to try and move through a large piece of it this morning. Because today's kind of message is really more geared towards teaching and understanding than it is towards some kind of radical application text that we're all going to walk away with. And that's just kind of part of the journey of teaching through Scripture. So, But there are a couple things I'm going to point out that I want us to hang on to. But i got to get us there first. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 10, verse 1. If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open it up. Um, if you don't have one, there should be one right there in front of you somewhere. Grab it. And uh, before we, of course, do that, let's go before the Lord and ask Him to teach our hearts this morning. So let's pray. Lord, I thank you um, for your word. I thank you that it is living and active, that it is sharper than any double-edged sword. I thank you that you tell us that it penetrates even the dividing joints and marrow, soul and spirit, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. 
God, every week I say this, but I, I mean it deeply. God, we know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. We do not take it lightly. We have a deep belief that your word is the ultimate authority. And so, God, as we explore it and teach it on Sunday mornings, we know that it is meant to impact and to change and alter and be the foundation of our lives. Uh, Lord, and we want nothing else than that. Lord, your word is not a supplement for us, but it is the anchor by which we live. And so, God, I pray this morning as we open this text, you would teach and instruct our hearts. For, God, this is ultimately the text that begins to draw in us in this room as uh, redeemed and saved Gentile people of Jesus Christ. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask God to prepare you or to teach you this morning. Just ask him to open your heart or your eyes to whatever it is that he wants to instruct you with this morning. Just ask God to teach your heart. someone around you, behind you, in front of you, even if you don't know their name, just pray for that person. The Lord knows who they are. Just be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we pray that you would be exalted as we open your word, that you would teach our heart, that that you would be glorified and we would ask these truths in the risen name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So I'm going to read through it because I want you to hear it all in one section, okay? And then I'll, I'll kind of break it up and we'll teach through it kind of verse by verse as we go. But I want you to hear it. Sometimes it's really important before I begin to teach these things that we catch the front end and the back end so that you can see where you're going. And we're going to go through the first 23 verses uh, of Acts chapter 10. So uh, keep in mind, at the end of Acts 9, right, Peter had been a part of this really incredible miracle where this woman by the name of Tabitha, had, who had, had loved people and, and taken care of the needy and cared for them, she had gotten sick and she had died, and Peter had showed up at her house, you remember, and, and he had prayed, and God used him, and he raised, not Peter, but God raised Tabitha from the dead, and everybody was blown away. And Acts chapter 9, as we looked at two weeks ago, right before Easter, ended with this statement. Right, And that Peter, verse 43, stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Now, it's really important, seemingly throwaway verse, and I mentioned a few weeks ago that it's really important because this is the moment in which things are changing. Right, And people were often associated with what they did. It's why we know that Matthew was a tax collector and Peter was a fisherman and Joseph was a carpenter. This guy named Simon was a tanner, and tanners were people that dealt with dead animals. They would take dead animal skins and they would turn them into whatever you would use dead animal skins for in those days. And Jewish customary law wouldn't allow you to come in contact with someone that had touched dead animals, okay? So tanners were often, often kind of despised by the Jewish community. They wouldn't have anything to do with them because if they touched them, went into their homes or had contact with them, they would be considered unclean, a good Jewish religious person. So the fact that Peter goes and he stays for an extended period of time with this Gentile tanner named Simon is significant in amongst itself. But none of these things are happening arbitrarily. As you're going to see today, there's a very intentional reason in what God is doing. 
and he is about to shift the entire course of redemptive history. So Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner in Joppa. All right, that's where he is. And let's move to chapter 10. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion in what was known as the Italian Regiment. He and his family were devout and God-fearing and gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly. One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision, and he distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord, he asked. And the angel answered, your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon, who is called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier, and one of his attend- who was one of his attendants, and he told them everything that had happened and sent them to Joppa. About noon the following day, as they were on their way to the, on that journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, and while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by all four of its corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth, birds of the air. And then a voice told him, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And the voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. And while Peter was still wondering about the meaning of this vision, the men sent, sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was, and they stopped at the gate. And they called out, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. And while Peter was still thinking about these things, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. And Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you're looking for, why have you come? And the men replied, we have come from the house of Cornelius, the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man and is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to come and have you come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. And then Peter invited the men in to his house to be their guests. It's a lot of words, but it's an important story. So here's what's going on. So Peter is living in Joppa at the time. He is there for an extended period of time, which means he's probably been there for weeks or even months. He's living with this guy, this Gentile, unclean person who worked with dead animals, which was incredible enough for Peter to do at this point in time. I mean, Peter was as devout a Jew as he was a Christ follower, yet he's staying with Simon the Tanner. And as he's doing this, there's this man by the name of Cornelius who lived in a town called Caesarea, which was 30 miles to the north of Joppa. And he is a man who we know was devout, and he looked after people, he took care of the needy, and he prayed regularly. He was a God-fearer, is what that text says. So we know that Cornelius was a Roman soldier. He was a centurion, which meant that he was in charge of at least 100 men. And he was in this kind of special elite unit called the Italian Regiment. All that to say is that he was kind of a big deal in the Roman army. He had a lot of people that sort of served him, and he oversaw a lot of people, and he served in an elite regiment. He was a centurion, but he had a huge heart for the poor, and he prayed regularly, and he was a God-fearer. Now, the idea of being a God-fearer is not a, uh, just a designation for someone who fears God. A God-fearer was actually a people group, okay? And so when you use, see the term a God-fearer in Scripture, what it refers to is a non-Jewish person 
who had come to follow all the laws of Judaism, had basically become a Jewish convert in all ways except one. They didn't submit themselves to circumcision, but they followed the one true God of Yahweh. What it means for uh, Cornelius to be a God-fearer is that he rejected the sort of pantheon of gods that made up the Roman Empire and all the Oriental religions of the time. And he worshiped the one true God, Yahweh of Israel, right? And the Jewish people accepted him and brought him in as they did with all God-fearers, but they saw them just not quite as good as they were because he wasn't, in, by blood, a Jewish person. So Cornelius, this Roman centurion, this God-fearer who had given his life to the God of the Israelites, to Yahweh, gave his money and his resources to the poor regularly, and he prayed regularly. That's what we know about him. And one day, about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. Now, three is not an arbitrary time. It was one of the three times of Jewish prayer. And what that means is that Cornelius was in prayer as a devout, God-fearing Jew, a Jewish person that had kind of converted his life that way. He was in prayer at one of the regular times of Jewish prayer. So he was exercising the sort of a lifestyle that a Jewish person would have, even though he was a Gentile um, person. So he was praying at three in the afternoon, right? And he was doing that and distinctly saw an angel of the Lord who came to him and said, Cornelius. And Cornelius stared at this angel in fear and said, Lord, what is it? Now, it's kind of interesting. This word that's used here that Luke uses for fear is the Greek word emphobos, which really just means to be absolutely kind of death-struck terrified. It's not like fear like you would think, oh, you startled me. It is a petrifying fear. The word is also used most famously in the resurrection appearance where, uh, and Matthew records it, where the stone had been rolled away and the angel of the Lord came and the guards that were standing guard by the tomb shook and became like dead people. So if you remember that account in Matthew, that same word infobos is used for that kind of fear. And this is actually not an uncommon thing. When kind of spiritual deity or heavenly encounters happen with humanity in Scripture, we see people seized with fear, right? Until God comes and either reassures them or kind of makes things right. You remember in Acts chapter 9 when uh, Saul was on the road to Damascus, right? And this sort of brilliant light from heaven shined all around him and he fell to the ground in terror. And Jesus speaks out of that light and he said, and, and Saul says, Lord, who are you? And he says, it's me, Jesus, who you're persecuting. Get up and go down into the city. You remember that whole deal? Same exact phrasing. The idea is that when sort of humanity comes in contact with this sort of supernatural divine, um, there's this fear that takes hold. Why? Because God is holy and magnificent and amazing, and we are sinful and broken. It's not because all of a sudden God is petrifying. It's God in his holiness compared with the humanity of who we are. There's not a whole lot of options that are left for us except for fear. And, and, and so Cornelius stares at this angel of the Lord in fear, an infobos. And he says, what is it, Lord? And the Lord says, and the angel says, uh, your prayers and gifts of the poor have come up as memorial offerings before God. Okay, so he's saying, listen, what you're giving away and your prayers, God has heard them. And this is really important because this language reeks of um, sacrificial terms, memorial offerings. These are things that Jewish people for centuries had participated in. And they offered their things to the Lord as offerings to God. And when God would receive them, he would reply to his people that God has seen and heard and even smelled your offering and it is pleasable. 
pleasing to him. And so basically what the angel of the Lord is saying is that, listen, Cornelius, even though you are not a Jewish person, the way that you have given your life away to other people, the way that you have devoted yourselves to prayer has come across God as a memorial offering, as an offering. It is pleasing to God. God has not only seen it, but he has smelled it. He has taken it in. The aroma of your offering is pleasing to God, right? And he is now basically coming to you. It's a huge deal for Cornelius because what God is basically doing is saying, as a Gentile, your offering matters to me, right? We're beginning to see that things are changing. Simon's at, Simon Peter's staying at the Tanner's house. Cornelius' offering is becoming pleasing to God, right? Things are beginning to shift. So he says, listen, I want you to send some men to Joppa and bring back a man named Simon who's called Peter. He's staying with a tanner whose house is by the sea. So he says, listen, I've got some very specific instructions. I want you to take a few of your guys and I want you to send them on a 30-mile walk to go get a guy named Simon, right, whose really name is Peter, who's staying with another guy named Simon who's a tanner who lives by the sea, right? Sounds like a song you heard in preschool. But the idea is this. Cornelius would have understood that any good Jewish person was not going to be staying with a tanner. But God doesn't give him any kind of specific instructions as to why, what this guy Peter had to say, why he was even being sent for. He just basically gave him the address. Find the house of the tanner, which everybody would know who that was, and he's over by the sea, and I want you to bring this guy Simon Peter back. All right, so when the angel of the Lord left, right, when he took off, uh, had gone, Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier. So he called two servants and another soldier who would be sympathetic to what was happening. A devout soldier meant that he was probably a God-fearer as well. And he called these three guys over, and he gives them the full story, and he sends them to Joppa, all right? They know now what he knows, which is all we've got from God is that we're going to go get this Simon Peter and bring him back here. So while they're on this 30-mile walk, which would have taken a few days, about noon the following day while they're walking, right, and they're on their journey and they're approaching the city, Peter went up to the roof to pray. Remember, he's staying at Simon the Tanner's house, and he went up to the roof to pray, and he became hungry, and he wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. So Peter is staying with Simon the Tanner. And in the middle of the day, about noon, he gets up to go to the roof to pray. Now, in those days, houses were built with flat roofs, and they were basically extensions of living space. And oftentimes, it was a great place to go and escape what was happening inside the house, especially during noontime in the Middle East where it was hot. Um, basically, Peter gets up and he goes to the roof to pray, ocean breeze, you know, the whole deal. He's praying, and while he's praying, he becomes hungry because who doesn't become hungry when they're praying? No real idea why this is in there, but it's in there. And so he basically tells them he's hungry, and he says, get me something to eat, right? I'm praying here. I don't have time to get my own, whatever it is. And, and making food in those days was not as easy as grabbing a bag of Doritos. Like, you had to prepare food. And so he says, look, I'm praying. Give me something to eat. And so while they're preparing food, it says that he falls into a deep trance. Now, actually, a literal, literal translation of that is a trance fell upon him. And I, I mention that only because what's really important here is that God is at work. God is causing a sort of altered or heightened consciousness because he is going to be speaking to Peter directly in an incredibly important vision. And what I want you to see is that Peter didn't just fall asleep while he was praying. He was in, so engaged in prayer that God put this state of consciousness on him, heightened his consciousness, so he could speak to him directly. And perhaps one of the most important visions that's communicated in all the New Testament. 
So they're cooking grits downstairs, and Peter has fallen into a trance. I don't know, maybe they had grits, maybe they didn't, but they're doing something. He falls into this trance. He saw heaven, and here's his vision. He saw heaven opened, and something like a large sheet being let down from its four corners. And it contained all kinds of four-footed animals and reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. And then a voice told him to get up, Peter, kill, and eat. So he sees this vision. Heaven opens. Not the first time we've seen a vision where heaven opened. If you remember Philip, while he was being stoned to death, he looked up and he saw the heavens open. In these moments, God gives clarity and he allows this, the human side to see supernatural things. And in this sort of trance or heightened state, Peter has this vision where he sees heaven open. And coming out of heaven is this giant sheet, which is also the Greek word for a giant ship sail. So we're talking about something massive. And it's being lowered down from its four corners. And in this sheet are all the basic animals of the earth. Reptiles and birds of the air and all those kind of things. The idea is that there are clean and unclean animals in this sheet, right? And God says to Peter, Peter, get up, kill and eat, all right? Now, it's probably a good time for us to just real quickly tell you or revisit this sort of Jewish dietary food laws because all of us are familiar with the idea that Jewish people don't eat pork. Right? That's the most famous of all those. But the dietary laws were actually tremendously complicated and huge. If you read Leviticus 11, there is a massive list of things that Jewish people could eat. You can't eat camels, you can't eat rabbits, you can't eat rats, weasels, geckos, chameleons, reptiles. Anything that swam in the sea that didn't have fins or scales, you couldn't eat all kinds of birds. Anything with a kind of a split hoof that didn't chew the cud, like it's a really complicated system. But the point is, it's a huge list of things that you can't eat. And the whole purpose of the Jewish dietary laws alongside all of Jewish laws were to separate them from the nations around them. God gave the Jewish people law so that they would look differently, both on the outside, circumcision, things like that, to the way that they dressed, to the way that they lived, to the things that they consumed. He wanted them to be so different so that they demonstrated his love and grace to the world around them. So God set, called, and set his people apart and gave them an entirely different set of laws that would demonstrate that they were a different people. And their dietary laws were that. They weren't like the people around them. They would just eat anything they could get their hands on and consume, to consume, to consume. But they believed that God would provide for them. And things were prepared in a way in which it gave thanks to God. And were prepared in a way in which it was clean so that they would be different from the other nations. So these dietary laws have been in place for thousands of years. All right? So when this vision comes and the Lord says to Peter to get up, kill, and eat the things in this giant sail, it was almost as if he was saying, hey, I want you to go against thousands of years of dietary laws, right? And so, of course, what is Peter's response? Lord, surely not. I've never eaten anything impure, unclean. It's not that Peter's being disobedient. It's just that for his entire life, he has obeyed every letter of the dietary laws. He has grown up in households where they obeyed every letter of the dietary law. And in one movement, God is repealing all of these sort of centuries or even millennia of these dietary laws. Now for us, it's kind of like, okay, whatever. But for them, it was a, this was a huge thing. And Peter is caught way off guard, right? And then he says, I can't. And then God, through the angel and the vision, spoke a second time and says, look, do not call anything impure that God has made clean, right? This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back into heaven. So Peter says, I can't. And God says, don't 
call it unclean if I made it. I created it, right? And then he does it another time so that three times in all, God gives this exact same command. With if you think about scripture at all, Peter and his three, it's a huge deal, right? Peter, you're going to disown me three times, right? Surely not I, Lord, sure. And Peter does it three times. You remember when Jesus was raised from the dead and he's reinstating Peter. They're standing on that beach that morning. And he says, Peter, do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. He looks at him again. He says, Peter, do you love me? Of course, Lord, I love you. Then feed my sheep. Third time, Peter, do you love me? You get the point that what God is doing with Peter in this repetition moment is showing things of deep importance. And so for three, three times he looks at him and he says, listen, this is what I'm telling you. Hear me. And in this moment, these dietary laws are completely removed. But this is really, as we're going to see next week, it's really not about animals and dietary laws. It's about people. God is opening up redemptive history to make way past the Jewish people for the Gentile, for you and for me, to be welcomed into God's kingdom, to be part of God's chosen people. He is removing and repealing the boundaries to the person of Jesus Christ to allow us access to Almighty God. Well, Peter doesn't get that. He doesn't know that at this point in time. Nobody knows what's going on. He just knows he's had this vision. All right, let's finish this up kind of quickly, and then I'll jump into a few things. Happened three times. While Peter was wondering about this, he didn't have any idea what it means, right? While he was wondering, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was. They came to the gate, and they asked if Simon Peter was standing, staying there. Peter was thinking about these things. The Lord spoke to him again and says, get up. Three men are looking for you. Go downstairs and don't hesitate to go wherever they tell you to go, right? So he gives him specific instructions but doesn't tell him why, doesn't tell him where he's going. Some guys are looking for you. I want you to go with them. So Peter gets up. He says, hey, I'm who you're looking for. I'm Simon Peter. Why did you come? And they say, look, Cornelius, and they explain the whole thing, sent us. And you're supposed to come back with us so that you can tell Cornelius whatever it is you have to say. And Peter doesn't know what he's going to say. He doesn't even know what's happening, right? And basically, he, they, he invites them in. They spend the night, and the next day, they get up, and they head back to Caesarea. Huge story, but really important. And you know what I find fascinating about the story? And we're going to really get into the explanation of the vision next week and talk about what God is doing redemptively. But you know what I find fascinating about the story is that no one has an idea what's going on. I mean, literally, we look at it, we read the whole thing, and we say, oh, yeah, you got Jesus, and you got these things, and you got all this history, and you got God repealing laws and changing redemptive history. The Jewish people now have access to it. We know all those things because we have the privilege of knowing Scripture in its entirety. But if you think about what's unfolding, you've got God showing up to a Roman guard for some reason, a Roman centurion. You've got Peter spending the night at the house of a tanner. You have God showing up in the life of this Roman saying, hey, look, there's a guy who you don't know. He's staying 30 miles away. I want you to go get him. I'll tell you why later if it's important, right? You've got Peter who's praying and engaged and kind of just waiting on the Lord, and he gets a vision that he doesn't understand, and it's got sheets and animals and reptiles, and then the voice of God tells him to kill and eat, something he's never done before, basically breaking all of his history, including all the way that he's been taught and raised, and he's trying to figure out what that means. He has no clue, and in the middle of that, God says, hey, look, a couple of guys are looking for you. Get up and go with them wherever they're going, right? Nobody has any idea. In fact, when Simon looks at, or Peter looks at those three guys, and he says, Hey, I'm who you're looking for. Why did you come? They look at him and say, oh, we don't really know. Cornelius wants you to come talk to him. That's all they know. All these moving pieces and nobody has any idea what's going on. Which is a lot of the way that God works. 
Now, here's what I want you to see in all this. So a lot of this text this morning is about getting us to understand what's unfolding. But there's two pieces that I think are really important that have some application for our lives when we think about this in its context, all right? And then we're really going to get next week into the depth of the vision and what it means and how this is a life changer for you and I, okay? But the first thing that I really want you to see is that, that God speaks when we are in prayer. So think about how God spoke to both Cornelius and Peter. So Cornelius, at, three, at, at, the, at the three o'clock afternoon prayer time, God shows up in that time in his life, and he speaks to him. He gives him instruction. And, and same thing with Peter. Peter's at noon. He's on the rooftop, and he's praying, and God gives him this deep vision. When, all through Scripture, New Testament, Old Testament, when God's people engage in prayer, God speaks to them. God uses prayer as the occasion to reveal new opportunities for life and ministry. God uses prayer to speak into the heartbeat of followers of his. This is just what we see in scripture. But our understanding of prayer is really skewed. We have a, we have a kind of a, a misguided picture of it. Because most of us think that prayer is kind of driven by our, our requests or our petitions or our things that we bring before the Lord. But really what we see in scripture is that prayer is about a deep and intimate relationship with God. It's where God reveals his heart. It's where God reveals his will. It's where God draws us into his presence. It's where God shares with us what he is engaged in and calls us to new things. Prayer is those pla- that place of intimacy where we share brokenness and tears and fears and failures and victories and triumphs, where we cry out, where we plead, where we fight, where we wrestle with God. And those things are intimate moments. Prayer is where God speaks life into our dry and withered hearts. Prayer is this relationship. It is the moments in which we know God's heartbeat because God reveals himself to us. And I mention this because I think there are some things that we see in scripture that we should understand about prayer. All right. And the first is this, God commands us to pray. Cornelius was engaging in exactly what God had commanded him to do, pray in the specific times God had given the people of Israel. And Cornelius was engaging in it. Peter was engaging in it. Colossians 4 tells us that we are called to be devoted to prayer. God commands us to pray, right? If we don't pray, if we're not engaging in it, we are not only disobedient to Scripture, we're disobedient to God, and that not only is foolish, but it's dangerous. Listen, if you struggle with prayer, consider yourself normal and sinful like the rest of us, but fight against it. Don't give in to your worldly inclinations to want to do things the easy way or just offer up your kind of prayer time and your convenience. Go to God with a few requests and that one friend that you told him you would make sure you prayed for their mom. The reality is that we are called to be devoted to prayer. God commands his people to be devoted to him. Why? Because prayer is not for you. God commands us to pray and prayer is not for you. A lot of times we think that prayer is that place where we let God in on the things in our life. Hey, God, you know, I don't know if you know this, but I'm really struggling right now. I kind of got a heart, I got a test coming up, or my marriage is this or that's going on. As if we are showing God something that he had no idea about. Prayer is not for God. Prayer is not to let God in on the things in your life in case he was like, oh, my gosh, I had no clue that was going on in your car. It's not new. Okay, I'll work on that. Thanks for letting me know. The reality is God knows every hair on your head. He knows every breath you will draw. In fact, Matthew tells us that he knows everything you need before you even ask for it. Prayer is for you. 
It's when we bring our heartbeats toward God and God reveals himself in his will, sometimes completely, sometimes only in part, so that we can trust him and see him move. Prayer is where God reveals his will and his heart for you. Prayer is where we know the heartbeat of God. For most of us, prayer is something that we do because we're supposed to. But very seldom do we come before the Lord and say, God, I want to know you. Instead, we use it as an opportunity of information sharing with the Lord. And the funny thing about it is we only share information that we want to anyway. We pray. We don't ever pray about the things that we're really deeply struggling with. We tell God what we think he wants to, to hear, right? Hey, God, you know I've really been busy lately. <laughs> I, mean, I mean to do all that. I've been working hard on this. And so I, I promise I'm on it. We think that's what God wants. Prayer is not for God commands us to pray, and prayer is not for God. Prayer is also, the third thing is prayer is also where we surrender our will to God's will. I find it funny in my own life because prayer is oftentimes where I come to God to try and convince him what I think needs to happen. Like I'm a kind of a, you know, a 12-year-old or a a 10-year-old trying to convince my parents that we need a puppy, right? And we convince them and we show them all the things and responsibilities. And we try and show them that we're smart and that we're adults. We've got this whole thing in line. And, and our parents look at us and they say, that's really great. I'm going to give you that because you have shown me you can handle it. We do that with God. I do it with him all the time. I'm like, God, look, here's what's really going on. And I've worked on this and I've done this. And if we just do this, I think this will happen. And I can make this. You'll make this work over to here. And I kind of lay this whole case out and I say, what do you think? God, this is not where I bring my will before the Lord, but instead where I lay mine down before God. And I say, God, I may desire all these things. I may long for all this, and you know my heart, but ultimately, not my will, but your will. You remember last week at Easter, in, in John chapter 12, where Peter, or, um, excuse me, where Jesus is explaining to his disciples, and he goes, my heart is so deeply troubled, Right? It's so deeply anguished because Jesus knows what's about to unfold. And he says, but what am I going to say? God, take me from this hour. Remove this from me. No way. It's for this very hour that I even am here. And that's evidence when he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane and he falls on the ground and he says, God, if there's any way, take this cup from me. But not my will, but your will. Jesus, in all of his honesty, pleads with God and says, if there's any other way, but ultimately not my will. Prayer is where we surrender our will to God's will. It's where I come before the Lord and I say, God, I deeply desire this. I long for this. I think this is what is happening here. But ultimately what I want is what you want in your glory. It's not that we can't ask God and petition God for things. But at the end of those things, we surrender our heart and our will to God's will. To ultimately say, but I don't know anything. I don't know how the world works. I don't know how things shape. I don't even know what you're doing in history. So ultimately what I want, I want to be subject to what you want. So God commands us to prayer. Prayer is for you. It's not for God. And it's where we lay our will down. And ultimately the final thing I want you to see about prayer is that prayer is where we find, where God speaks, and we find deep, intimate, and rich fellowship with God. If you wonder why your spiritual life is empty and passionless, and it's a Sunday-to-Sunday experience, I guarantee you it falls back on the fact that your time with the Lord in prayer is either non-existent or lacking. Because prayer is where deep, rich intimacy and fellowship happen. Going to church more times will not solve your spiritual dryness. Okay, I promise you. Even reading the Bible will not solve your spiritual 
dryness. Prayer is where God gives life to our parched and withered hearts. The reason you are spiritually dry or stagnant or passionless or whatever words you want to use there, I promise you is because your prayer life is probably either habitual, lacking depth and reality and passion, or it doesn't exist or nominal at best. If you want to rectify the spiritual dryness in your life, fall on your knees before the Lord. There's not a formula or a system. It's honesty and truthfulness, surrendering your heartbeat to the will of God, right? It's where God reveals himself to you. So often prayer is not about you just hollering things out to God, but about allowing God to speak to you. Cornelius and Peter both, God spoke to them in prayer. Literally a trance fell upon Peter and God speaks into Cornelius' life. He didn't give either of them specific instructions about what was going to happen on a global scale. He just said, hey, look, go get that guy. And he said to Peter, hey, some big things are about to happen, so go with this guy. Now, I say all that to, to kind of let you know that when we think about prayer in the context of our relationship with Christ, it is the central movement. Nothing else will fix whatever's broken with you. So we go before the Lord. So the first thing I want you to see there is that, that, that God speaks to us in prayer. The second thing that I want you to see, and the last thing, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap everything up, is this. God works in the unseen. Now, I know this seems obvious, but it, we trust God about as far as we can see him working, okay? So what I want you to understand is that God is deeply at work in the unseen things around you. Think about this whole scenario. None of these cats know what's going on at all. Cornelius is just told to go and get this guy from Joppa. Peter's told about this vision that he doesn't understand. The servants are just on the road doing what they were told to do. Peter is told to go and go back with him, and he doesn't even know what he's going to say. We'll see that next week. All of these pieces are moving, and if you look at them as non-connected parts, it's almost ridiculous. But we have the privilege of looking at them at a whole and seeing that God is doing something tremendous. But in those moments, I promise that if you were to pin Cornelius or Peter or any of these guys down and say, what's happening? They would look at you and say, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what's happening. So why are you going down to Caesarea? I don't know. Why are we going for some guy named Simon Peter who we don't know who's staying at an unclean house with an unclean tanner? I don't know. God is at work in the unseen moments in your life. There's a deep theological principle, which I'll kind of teach on later at some point, I'm sure. Deep theological principle. It's really nuanced and complicated um, if you really want to get into it. But it's called the providence of God. The providence of God is this. The idea that God is at work in and through all of creation for his glory and for his purposes. Okay? Now, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but that's the basic idea. That all created things were made by God are governed by God, are drawn together by God and orchestrated by God for His glory and for His purpose. What that means is that even when you don't experience, feel, or see God, He is at work around you for His glory. God is always moving and He is at work in the unseen. And there are so many times in our life where we are left with questions, where we are left with uncertainty, we look around us and say, God, where are you? And we have no idea of the bigger picture. God is changing all of redemptive history through these journeys back and forth to Caesarea. And they don't have any idea about it. 
at this very moment, God is at work in your life. He is at work around you. He is working in someone else's life so many miles away to impact your life or change history or something in some way. God is always at work. And we are so quick to abandon that trust when we don't see God. We trust God as far as we can see him working. And when we don't, we think he's gone. But if we read scripture, we really read it, God is deeply at work in his glory in the unseen, even in those deeply difficult moments, right? We've seen those in Acts. We watched Philip get stoned to death. We watched the heavens open as God kind of shows Philip this incredible picture of heaven and eternal life. And we wonder why God is at work for a deeper purpose and for his glory. God is redeeming all things, even the brokenness in the world, for his glory. The providence of God is an idea, a theological concept that says, through all of creation, God is at work to bring about his glory and his purpose. There are no things that were spun into motion and just haphazardly exist. God didn't create this world and then put it on an axis and spin it and say, I hope everything works out all right. He is deeply at work in all of creation, including your life, to bring about his glory. So whatever you're wrestling with, afraid of, feeling empty, vague, whatever those things are, what we see in this text is that we can trust that God is at work. Even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense, God is at work redeeming even the brokenness of humanity, drawing it in for his glory and his purpose. And that's not always easily explainable. Sometimes it's centuries before these things come to light because God works on an entirely different timetable. But the reality is it doesn't change the fact that God is at work for his glory. And my prayer all the time in my own life is just that, God, I'm fearful and I'm afraid, but I trust that you're at work. Ultimately, as Christ followers, these become the places that we find hope and trust. So you're wrestling with that? Fall on your knees. Go back to God in prayer and plead with him. Say, God, I am lacking trust. Reveal yourself to me. Give me comfort. Give me peace. It falls back to the idea that God speaks to us when we're in prayer. God is at work in the unseen. He is redeeming humanity for his glory and for his purpose. All of creation, God is at work in to bring about his glory. 